This episode of the Fertility Podcast is brought to you with the Fertility Show, which is taking place from the 1st to the 3rd of November in London in 2019. Now, I was working with the Fertility Show in Manchester in March of this year, hosting their Let's Talk Fertility stage. And what I wanted to do was give you a taster of what that stage was about. So if you're thinking of coming to the London show, you'll know what to expect. So the Let's Talk Fertility stage was me along with a panel of guests, some experts, some people sharing their experiences, and it was a Q&A session for you to come and ask some questions. Now, if you've been to the fertility show before and maybe not had the chance to ask questions, then this is where you need to come. So whilst you're wandering around, maybe you go and see a seminar, then you can come and ask that expert some questions because that's the point of going to a show like this is to get some answers. Now we recorded a host of the sessions that took place at the Manchester Fertility Show and that's what you're gonna hear. And then in the show notes at the end of this episode will be details of the different experts and people that were sharing their experiences. First up is from the panel called It's Okay to Talk About Your Fertility. And I was joined by three very glamorous ladies who you might well recognize from this morning. Dr. Zoe Williams, who's a GP, and this morning resident doctor. Dr. Larissa Corder, who is a consultant in reproductive medicine and also a resident doctor on this morning. And Emma Kenny, who is a TV psychologist. She's a presenter. She's also often on the This Morning Couch and she's a channel mum expert. And we were talking about how much more common it is for fertility and infertility to be spoken about, especially on the phone-ins that they have on This Morning. And you're gonna hear Dr. Larissa talk about her views on it. And then Dr. Zoe Williams talking about solo motherhood and where she's at because she's been sharing quite openly what she's thinking of doing on her social media. I do think because of conversations that are starting and because we're removing the stigma and because people genuinely need this treatment, as you say, women are just getting older and older by the time they come and see us and that's through no fault of their own. It's just, you know, socially... Everything has changed for women, but biologically nothing has, sadly, or not yet. Um. And you mentioned the solo motherhood route, and it's something, Zoe, that I know that we were chatting about before, and it's something that you'd shared on your Instagram feed about a piece that was written in the mail, talked about your egg freezing experience, and then there was just a tremendous amount of comments from people saying thank you for talking about it, but as a result you were talking about what you were then potentially going to be doing next, going down the solo motherhood route. And I think the fact that that is a conversation that is happening and that, you know, there's someone like you that people have seen on the telly and that they can they can relate to and that you're now sharing this intimate, you know, part of a decision-making process that's going on. How have you felt reading all the comments that were coming back? Yeah, it was amazing. People say to me, you're so brave for sharing your fertility experiences publicly on Instagram. And that post was about me having frozen my eggs, um, which Larissa was my wonderful doctor. She's got lovely eggs. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Safely frozen. Um, on a scale of one to ten, it was a ten. It was a ten, it was a ten. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, people say you're so brave, but actually, I don't recall any negative comments coming back from that. Just so much love and positivity and thanks for talking about it openly. And I don't see why... Why is, that, why is that so brave? Why is that so unusual? I mean, you know, we're now talking about mental health more openly. If you've got a broken foot, you can talk about it. So if you're on a fertility journey, why can we not talk about that? We should be able to. Um, and then, yeah, so the solo motherhood. So I'm 38 and I'm single, kind of. Um, <laughs> 
But he's not told me about this. He's, not, know, he's, not, know, he's not the baby daddy, it's, is he? It's very recent. But anyway, let's say I'm single for argument's sake. I'm 38 and single, and the two things I've always known I want to be are a doctor and a mother. And the fact that, you know, actually the time is ticking, um, I thought if I freeze my eggs, then that's all I can do at the moment. At least that's something, and I know that it's not guaranteed that those eggs will help me have a child in the future, but it's something I can do, so I did it. And did you find that an empowering experience, or did you find it was something that has then caused you ongoing concern as to whether it will then work? I found it incredibly empowering, and I think there were so many times within that journey that I had the choice to either feel very sad or feel very empowered. And what really helped me is that I filmed my whole journey. So we had a film crew for the bits when I was with Larissa, and then I filmed myself giving my, myself my injections. And, you know, for example, when I was in the clinic and I was sat there on my own and there were couples, sadness came. I thought, I'm here on my own and this feels really sad. I thought, hang on a minute, how can I flip that on its head? And I thought, I'm here to preserve my fertility. For all I know, I can have a baby. I just haven't met a partner. And these couples who are here are actually in, in possibly, you know, a worse circumstance in that their fertility, they're having an issue. So I think there was a lot, of, for me, there was a lot of flipping it on its head, but also because I was filming it, when I was injecting myself in my tummy, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is really sad that I'm doing this. I was thinking, I'm doing this. So that helped me. But what I thought it would give me in terms of, I thought I would feel that I had some assurance and I'd done everything I could do and I could relax a little bit. It didn't give me that because I thought, well, okay, there's a 30% chance there that I can conceive later in life, but that's not enough. And actually there is something else I can do. And do I really need a man? And it was interesting you spoke about grieving because I, I actually was helping out the Fertility Counselors Association by being their guinea pig. I went along to their training and was their case study so they could ask me questions, which at first I thought I was doing something kind and helpful for them, but actually having 22 fertility counselors around you in a circle is quite helpful. And, um, and the most helpful question or, you know, conversation that we had was when one of them said to me, um, you know, ideally you want to have the perfect family, you want to fall in love with a man and you want to have a baby with him, but you are 38 and your fertility, we did the fertility test, I'm below average for a 38 year old, you know, if you can't have that, which is more painful to grieve for, the perfect family or being a mother. And when it was put to me that way, it was just, it was a given, is being a mother. And at that point I thought, do you know what? I can do this alone. And I'm now mentally preparing myself for that journey. Now the Let's Talk Fertility stage is for everybody. And I mean everybody, because we really want to encourage that conversation to happen. We had a brilliant Men Matter Too session because so often guys talk about feeling ignored when they're either having consultations or even not really wanting to have the conversation about trying to get pregnant, start a family. And we talked about this in depth in this session. You're going to hear from Dr. Mohammed Akhtar, who's a consultant gynecologist at St. Mary's and Manchester Fertility, and also Dr. Michael Carroll, who's a senior lecturer in reproductive science at Manchester Metropolitan University, talking about things men really need to be aware of when it comes to their fertile health. First of all, I want to say that men do have to be part of the conversation in consultations a lot more than we're currently doing. Men, when even they come with their uh, partner, they have to discuss about themselves. I think we need to give them more space. Number two, the tests are, currently we're doing very basic testing. 
with semen analysis and on the basis of semen analysis we decide yes this sample is good that's it or this is not good and we do IVF with ICSI and we just kind of just step out of it and says okay this is a problem let's get on with IVF with ICSI but we do not then identify what has led you to have this poor sperm quality shape count and we do not investigate enough and we just say okay and this is one of part of issue from our side as a clinician we do not take it further than this we know that the nice guideline says if the sperm count is less than five million per ml we need to do further investigations and hardly that happens which is a shame but i think we're gonna improve in these kind of sessions and awareness is increasing we can offer more tests to identify the cause same as a woman with low account then we check the hormone test why that is genetic abnormalities same thing we need to do with men so we need to have much more availability as well as awareness that this cannot just happen yes IVFXE thank you very much because at the end of the day there is opportunity for men to improve their sperm count which is unlike women who are born with their eggs men are not born with a sperm so there's an opportunity and I think we do not tackle it enough well, we talked a lot here on the stage about fertility education relating to female education that we don't sadly know enough about our menstrual cycle. And it's something that I think when it comes to, to men, guys aren't really aware of the lifestyle and environmental factors. I know, Michael, that's something that you've done a lot of research into. So highlighting some of those things that men need to be thinking about early on, give us some ideas of things to, to take on board. The thing with um, sperm is that there's a very fast turnover. 1,000 sperm a second are produced in the testes. And because of that, you're going to have a, a, quite a large number that will be abnormal, simply because of the nature of that cell division and that production. As with any aspect, personal health, smoking or any environmental type exposures, will have an impact or can have an impact. The problem is there's no definitive studies to point and say X causes a low sperm count or X causes uh, this kind of level of DNA damage. There's a lot of studies out there demonstrating that um, obesity can cause um, decline in sperm quality or smoking. But then when you do um, meta-analysis and bring all these studies together, you'll find that that might not be the case, that the findings are not as, as bad. So what's required, really? We do have an idea that some of these exposures can cause a decline in sperm quality. But what we need is more, more studies, wider studies, clinics collaborating together, not just using... Um, patients that are coming through from IVF because they're already a compromised population but opening up studies to the general public looking at different cohorts different age groups bringing them in and then doing the semen analysis not just the count motility or um, morphology but also molecular andrology analysis looking at um, things in the DNA the damage to DNA adducts in DNA that, that can um, make the sperm more fragile, anything that would uh, cause abnormal function. Yes, environmental and lifestyle does have an impact. It has an impact in all aspects of our health and reproductive uh, health will be part of that. But defining the actual cause is, is, the, is the holy grail really and that's where more research and more funding is required. Without that, we're still kind of guessing in some ways. Next up, we're focusing on how trying to have a baby affects you at work. It's a really hot topic that needs more of a spotlight on it. And it was something that I was really passionate to talk about on this stage and we'll be talking about it again in London because there needs to be more conversation between employers and employees as to what is going on even if 
it feels really awkward. And I was joined by Aileen Feeney, the former chief executive of Fertility Network UK, and Hortense Thorpe, who's an outsource manager at Centrica. And she talks about her experience of how she discovered that Centrica had this fertility group and how she's now involved in it. What we're going to just talk a bit about is experiences of uh, infertility in the workplace. And I suppose I might start with a little bit of personal reflection, just because I spoke with Grazia magazine, which came out this week about, um, I was doing a breakfast radio show when I had fertility treatment. So I was live on air, being upbeat and um, positive, and had found out we needed to have treatment, and then had to continue to be upbeat and positive, knowing that I was embarking on fertility treatment. And I had no idea who to tell. I had no idea who I could speak to. I found the number of an HR person because I was actually a freelancer, so I'd never had the conversations about who, how HR worked. I um, had a very brief conversation where I was pretty much told to tell my boss something when I asked how I had the conversation at work because I was told otherwise he would probably think I was looking for another job. And the long and short of my experience was that there wasn't a policy in place. And I decided to talk to those closest to me doing this radio show because I needed to have something as a backup. We recorded some stuff for when I wasn't there for the trigger injections. But whilst my treatment worked first time, thank goodness, and that part of the journey was okay, the going through the treatment, I didn't feel 100% through it, yet was having to be positive on air. And it never occurred to me that there might be something where I could take some time out. And that's something that I think is vital in what Fertility Network have created and Hortense will share her experience as well because I know that there was research that you conducted as well, and it was a good 26% of people who didn't talk about the treatment to work, and over 50% were worried it would affect their career. Yeah, that's right. So infertility is still that taboo subject. And if you don't want to speak about infertility, but then you've got all of those pressures in your work environment and all of those concerns that by telling somebody that you're going through fertility treatment, it might impact your work, it might impact your career prospects. It's just, you know, more and more layering on the individual. Now Hortense, when you started to take on the pressures of what you were going through on your trying to conceive journey, were unaware of what support there was in your workplace. So just explain how you found out, because there actually was a network in place, wasn't there? Uh, absolutely. So I discovered I was infertile um, or partly and, and couldn't conceive naturally about two, three years ago, and um, and I was part of a women's network, which organizes events uh, from time to time. And we happened to have um, a, an event at that time around uh, maternity and returners uh, from maternity or from, from breaks. Um, and somebody mentioned, I think it was the HR person, actually mentioned that there was an IVF policy. And I was like, oh, well, I, I think I might need that, unfortunately. So I, I did find out that we actually, our company offers five annual leave days per year, which sub subjectively is not really enough because you will use those five days easily in one cycle. I think it's on average about eight days that you might need to take off depending on how flexible your employers are. But then at least it's really a great step because it's a lot of stress that you take away knowing that you won't need to use up all your holidays, etc. And, and, and that actually, you know, knowing that there's something in place, maybe your manager will be okay with it and it'll be an easier conversation to have. So Hortense, they're talking about the support that she now has. And another topic of discussion that we had on the Let's Talk fertility stage was about the importance of support. 
something that is a massive part of what Fertility Network UK do. And you're going to hear Aileen Feeney and Catherine Hill from the network talking about how they can support you, what's kind of available for you so that you you so know that you're not alone with all of this. And also Andrea Trigo, who's the founder of Infertile Life. She's a fertility nurse and NLP coach. And Andrea talks, bless her, with a bit of a bad throat about her own diagnosis as a teen with her infertility and about the acceptance of it all. I was diagnosed with infertility when I was 17 years old, so I was very, very young. And it took me about 15 years to cope. I wouldn't say that we are able to fully get over it. I don't think that happens. But at different stages of life, we will find ourselves in different, uh, with different challenges. Um, but I've reached a point after 15 years where I was okay again, uh, and I was able to embrace life and embrace a plan B as opposed to, I don't know, uh, just being through the roller coaster of emotions. So for me, um, I thought if I was able to cope, I wanted to give that back to other people because I felt that for someone in their 20s or 30s to find that they are infertile and still having to go through treatment or make decisions, that's a very short period of time. So I wanted to accelerate that process to other people. So that has been the reason why I do what I do. Aileen, when it comes to the first steps that people can take to ask for help, what would you say? I mean, you have a whole range of different channels in to access the support. Yes, so Fertility Network provides free and impartial advice to anybody wherever they are in their fertility challenges and fertility journey. And I think you've already made a couple of really important points. Absolutely, you are not alone. It might feel like it at times. It might feel like you're the only person that's going through this situation, but you are not. And there is a wealth of people and wealth of information out there that that can help. And don't be afraid to ask. So in terms of what Fertility Network do, we have a whole range of more traditional face-to-face support groups that we run and you can get information on where they are if there's any in your locality off our website we also um, have facebook groups we have instagram accounts which i'm sure we're going to come on and talk about in a minute but then we also have information line and a support line where in our information line you can ring up and ask any questions you want i know often you you're given lots of information you just might not be able to perhaps understand it at that point in time We have a a support line where you can speak to a retired fertility nurse and qualified counsellor. You might have gone to an appointment and kind of been told a whole load of what feels like a foreign language and just want some kind of second opinions or some further information. So all of those things are available. And in this room today, you've got so many experts and so many people that just want to help and support. Catherine, I know that you get to hear quite a lot of examples of of people's experiences. What kind of stage do you think people actually reach out for help? Do you think it's early enough? Um, No, I don't think people do reach out early enough. And in fact, what we've discovered at Fertility Network is that there are a whole series of ways in which uh, people are failed when it comes to getting support. So we know that people often feel failed when they go to their GP right at the start of their fertility journey. In a survey that we did a couple of years ago, um, three quarters of people felt that their GP didn't give them enough information. So that's a massive amount of people feel let down, a lack of support there. 
we know that people um, feel a lack of support when they are trying to when they're going through the fertility process itself and they're trying to juggle work and fertility treatment, um, that employers don't have fertility policies in place that support you going through treatment when you need to take time off work. Um, we know that people feel let down because they can't access support groups when they want to. So I think we hear from a lot of people in all these different ways where there really is you know, a lack of support. Can I just get a little show of hands of anybody that's spoken to either a medical professional or someone at work about maybe what's going on and has felt supported? Or have you found that it's maybe been misunderstood or you just haven't spoken out? Has anybody had a positive experience? Great. Well, that's encouraging. Has anybody spoken and had a negative experience? Okay. We, 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 if you're happy to, I would like to talk about it a bit more because I think it's a two-way process in that we need to help the people we're speaking to understand the support that we want as well as getting the support that we need. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that uh, Catherine mentioned our fertility in the workplace um, initiatives we've gotten, raising awareness of, of fertility and infertility and the impact it has on people is really important because unless you've been touched by it personally, you won't necessarily understand. And so you, you won't know what to say and, and probably more importantly, what not to say. And part of that is in all of the uh, information that we're trying to get out and share there. One of the things that we have to get our head around when dealing with infertility is, is accepting what's going on, accepting that we've been faced with this unexpected challenge and then it therefore means that what we'd assumed might happen in our lives isn't necessarily going to happen. And that acceptance is also a key part of moving forward. So I, I want to just talk about that acceptance, because obviously yeah. you talked about it being quite early on in, in yes. your life. Yes, so I did say to medical professionals in the beginning of my journey, I don't need mental health support. I felt I didn't need it. But that's actually quite common. People often underestimate the upheaval of the journey. And it's very likely that at some point you will need support. And that journey starts usually with the shock and the denial, the sadness, the depression. And we go back and forth uh, in this crazy eight of being hopeful and then being sad and depressed and angry and then feeling hopeful again. Um, and when we talk about acceptance, we're not talking about accepting a life without children. We're talking about accepting that things are not going to happen as easily as you thought they would and embracing that plan B. And usually for me, I feel it's always a big part of what I do is helping people cope with the loss of not having things happening as easily and as quickly as they thought they would and opening their hearts to welcoming that plan B instead of angrily pursuing it. So that, that's where acceptance comes from. So for our final snippet of what to expect on the Let's Talk Fertility stage, we talked about plan B, what to, what to do if IVF doesn't work for you. And I was talking with Linda Wilkinson, who's a surrogate mother with Surrogacy UK. Also Mandy Worsley, who's a mum through adoption and she's a fertility formula specialist. And Kate Dobb, who is mother to twins, conceived through an egg donor. So you'll hear Linda talking about what it's like to be a surrogate, Kate talking about the experience of working with a surrogate, and Mandy talking about her experience of adoption. So we've got a really interesting 
interesting mixture of experiences here. And it's really, as with all of these sessions, to highlight to you that there are other people who have walked the path ahead of you to give you that support and guidance. So I think where we'll start is with Linda, just talking a bit about your decision to become a surrogate. Because I've um, spoken to a number of surrogates and I'm in awe of all of you because I think you know what you're doing is is amazing and I know you work with Surrogacy UK that decision to become a surrogate first of all and you've got children of your own haven't you yeah so I knew that my family was complete I was very fortunate to have a daughter of my own and my husband had a daughter from a previous relationship as well as two older sons so our family was complete and we just wanted to share that opportunity of a family with with someone else and it made sense to me that if I could help someone then why wouldn't I um, I already donated blood on a regular basis um, and if I could help someone to me it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to do um, I also really enjoy being pregnant um, and the experience of pregnancy and birth I really wanted to share that with someone else now, you work with Surrogus UK, and to give you just a kind of overview, Surrogus UK pride themselves on their friendship first ethos. Because I think wherever you're at in the decision-making process, it's, it's important to point out that the next stage of something like, if you're looking at the surrogacy route, it's not something that is likely to happen quickly. And I know, Kate, that that's something from your experience. The friendship first ethos behind Surrogus UK was something that you were involved with. How long a period of time did you go through before finding a surrogate? From joining Surrogacy UK, it was relatively quick. It was actually a very quick journey. So um, we met Mickey within three months and then spent three months getting to know her um, before deciding to embark on surrogacy as a team. However, prior to the point of getting to surrogacy, it was about 20 years. So, <laughs> Because Kate experienced childhood cancer and so grew up knowing that it just wasn't going to be an option, was it? So there was yeah. a lot of factors that you had to, you had to work through. Yeah. So I, um, I had childhood cancer when I was 10. And when I was 13, I found out that I was infertile. So I didn't have my own eggs. Um, and also because it was pelvic cancer, my womb was too damaged to even accept donor eggs. So I went through some tests, but um, it would have been impossible for me to carry a pregnancy. So, I mean, there's a, a, a lot that I want to kind of cover with your journey, because Kate had an egg donor, which was actually your sister. My sister, yeah. And then the surrogacy kind of relationship, which I want to talk about with the pair of you. The, the, the initial kind of egg donation with a family member, navigating your way through that is... is quite a big challenge there's quite a lot of pressure as well isn't there on, on I suppose both of you yeah when we started looking at surrogacy and I knew obviously from a very early age I didn't have my own eggs so we were looking at donor eggs and thinking of going for an anonymous donor I didn't expect my sister to offer to donate her eggs and it never occurred to me to ask her but during a conversation about going through the surrogacy route and having donor eggs um, my sister just said to me on the phone oh you know you can have my eggs if you want and you know she said it just like that as though it was nothing to her so that's how we started I said well you know it's a massive decision you have to really think about it and she goes oh no it'll be fine and so I brought the subject up about a month later and she was still just as keen and said she'd been thinking about it and yeah so it wasn't so much of a big deal from her side as I anticipated Thank goodness. I mean, yeah. what an amazing thing. <laughs> and Linda, then, when you're working then as a team, Kate, I know the specific language that is part of the whole process, and there are these more complex, maybe, backgrounds to the intended parents. I mean, that's 
quite hard then for you to not be emotionally involved or how do you manage that part of your involvement? Yeah, absolutely. You you do get involved because those people are your friends and in Mary Carmen's case she had a heart condition which meant that she was she was unable to carry but I wanted her to experience as much of that pregnancy as she possibly could so for example she is originally from Mexico so speaks Spanish so I was able to do things like play her speaking in Spanish and uh, and baby's father um, speaking in Spanish to the bump we're using some special things called belly birds because I wanted them to have that bond you know as early as possible and for me that was it was almost more exciting than my own pregnancy because there are so many people involved and invested so it's just makes it really really rewarding but then you are appreciating that they've come through so much to get to this point. Kate, from hearing Linda speak and from the relationship you had with your surrogate, did that have any impact on your own feelings of you becoming a mum? Did it make you feel insecure at all? Because obviously there's a part of the process that you're not able to be involved with. No, because we had built up such a good friendship beforehand and she was given the option of being a mum, which I thought I would never have. I never felt jealous that she was carrying my babies. Um, she let me be a part of it every step of the way. So um, she sent me little videos of her, you know, baby kicks through her tummy. And um, she texted me if the baby was kicking her in the middle of the night. And we went to all scans and very much a part of it. So I never felt like I was missing out. I felt like I was very much a part of the pregnancy. I want to bring Mandy in because I'm because Mandy after your own fertility struggles you then went on to adopt do you want to just talk a bit about because it was a, it was when we first spoke about this I remember asking you whether it was a, a, a difficult experience and, and you told me that it was relatively straightforward but we know that now maybe there's more red tape along the way but just talk a little bit about when that point had come you had to accept yeah. that the adoption was going to be the next step and we're not ever going to say just adopt because we know it's not at all the right type of language. Uh, we had six rounds of IVF, so we, we had our own kind of really long uh, fertility journey. You kind of go through a range of emotions and you do look at all sorts of options. Um, and obviously adoption for us was an option that we looked at. And again, when we were emotionally ready, that was something that we then moved on to. And as you say, it was, it was amazing for us. Um, my son is now 14. He was nine months old when we adopted him. And my daughter's 12 and she was 11 months old when we adopted her so I've been a mom for 13 years which is just amazing and ultimately for me it was about being a mom you're a mother whichever way whatever way that happens 14 years on I'm his mother you know I'm her mother and that was what we're all here for really so whichever route you choose or is chosen maybe for you um, then that is how it happens but those emotions are massive and I think helping yourself to work through that but the process there's some amazing people at the back here adoption now and Caritas Care and the process actually is about six months so it's not that long now and actually there is loads and loads of support out there so please if it's something that you want to do go and talk to those people please come and talk to me I have lots of links with um, various people that adopt and can support you in that. 
So I'm hoping that gives you a nice overview of what you can expect on the Let's Talk Fertility stage. And that's just one small bit of the fertility show because the seminars, Fertility Fest will be returning once again. If you missed it in Manchester or the whole run that Fertility Fest did at the Barbican, you will have another chance to see some of the amazing artists and again, awesome conversations that take place around art and infertility. And then there's the Let's Talk Fertility stage, which is for you whilst you're walking around. If you wanna just stop and take it all in, you can come and sit down, you can listen, or if you want to get involved with the conversation, then of course you can. So all you need to do is get yourself to thefertilityshow.co.uk because tickets are on sale. And the dates for your diary are the 1st to the 3rd of November. It's the first year that The Fertility Show has got a new Friday evening opening. So if in the past you've thought, it's my weekend, I want to just chill, I don't want to think about this, you can nip in after work. And wherever you're at, whether you're in a relationship or you're just wanting to know what your options are, if you think you're going at it alone, I assure you there will be some fascinating, insightful conversations to be had. Be sure to follow me on my socials at Fertility Poddy. You can get in touch with any questions you might have about the show, any questions you might want to ask, because I'm going to be gathering them over the coming months to ask on your behalf if you don't feel like asking them or if you're unable to come. Show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash London. There you'll find all the details that you need and links to uh, the Fertility Show website if you're on the move and you can't remember the URL I just gave you. Normal podcasting will resume in the next episode. Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time, 